In November of 2021, we featured insights from subject matter experts across national security to explore how Russia fights. You know, and we talked about it in the past. We talked about the Russians being a very combat experienced force. On February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia has launched a military assault on Ukraine. Kiev gunfire and explosions have been heard here. Russian assault on Ukraine began with missile attacks on key targets. With an active military component nearly five times that of Ukraine, recent operational experience in the region as well as Syria, and a modernized force with advanced weaponry, Russia was seemingly poised to strike quickly and declare victory. Go in quick and dirty, create some social unrest, and, you know, sort of this thing will take care of itself. Now, in July of 2022, roughly four months on, the war still rages, with Russia making slow but costly territorial gains. A lot of these problems stem from Russia's definition of this conflict to begin with. But what happened between then and now? How has the world's fifth largest army been held off for so long? What has gone right? And more importantly, what has gone wrong for the Russian military? What does it mean for the future of the United States in conflict? The best way for us to learn is to examine these type of conflicts. To answer these questions and more, we brought back our subject matter experts to examine this ongoing conflict and explain how Russia fights 2.0. While Russian national leadership envisioned a short and rapid campaign to seize critical territory in Ukraine and force political capitulation by the Ukrainian central government, the reality has been starkly different. I'm Ian Sullivan. I'm the senior advisor for analysis and ISR at the TRADOC G2, and I'm a career intelligence officer who's been doing this for 25 plus years. I think the conflict has sort of settled into a a rhythm at this pace where it's a it's a methodical slugfest slog, you know, more akin to, to, to in some ways the progress you saw on the Western Front in the First World War than, than anything else. I think a major breakthrough by either side would be surprising, um, but, but certainly would have a, a significant impact. I think there are capabilities that the Russians still have, um, some of them frightening if they if they choose to use them. Um, CBRN in particular is something that, that I'm always concerned about. That would be surprising. Some kind of political change on, on one side or another would be surprising. A surprise uh, that, that, that could have an impact on the conflict, of course, would be escalation management run amok. You know, the West, the West continues to support Ukraine. Um, the Russians aren't necessarily pleased with it. Um, the Ukrainians are getting some new and sophisticated capabilities. What happens with escalation? Um, at some point, do the Russians, you know, undertake an operation or think about taking an action uh, to demonstrate their displeasure that that is potentially escalatory that could have an impact on the conflict? So there's still a lot of wild cards out there. And those wild cards certainly have the ability to, to change the, the face of the conflict, to change the character of the conflict, and, and, and particularly to escalate. And that's really the scary part, because I think all of us, as we think about conflict, we, we think that we that there are ways to effectively control escalation. And I think the reality is escalation has a mind of its own sometimes. So that's that's one of the frightening parts, I think, moving forward. My name is Samuel Bendet, and I'm an advisor with the CNA Russia Studies Program. I'm also an adjunct senior fellow with the Center for New America Security. I look at the Russian development and use of advanced technologies like robotics, autonomy, and unmanned systems, as well as Russia's application of artificial intelligence for the military. We have to give credit to the Ukrainian military. 
Um, a lot of analysts may have underestimated the credibility of Ukrainian military to meet its peer adversary. And just as Russians claimed that they were learning from its wars in Syria, they were learning from their engagement with Ukraine in 2014 and 2015, they were learning from other conflicts taking place around the world that use legacy and new and advanced technologies, Ukrainians were learning as well. And we have to give them credit for being very good students of their initial setbacks against the Russians in 2014 and 2015. So they were able to very successfully counter and surprise the Russian military early on, and they continue to do so today. My name is Peter Zwak, Brigadier General Army, retired. I joined the Army uh, deep, deep in the Cold War uh, in 1980 and retired after 34 years. I was a military intelligence officer and became a foreign area officer, which, which gave me uh, my opportunity uh, to work uh, Russia, Eurasia, Soviet Union, Russia, Eurasia, our defense attache in 2014. I am a global fellow at the Wilson Center within the Kennan Institute. While the Russians had done a lot of exercises and firepower, they really hadn't exercised or efficiently exercised the critical webs and hubs of logistics and getting things places and, and long road marches and operational, almost frontal operations that they didn't do. And they kind of invaded, looking as, as if it was going to be a, a waltz. There was a certain arrogance and disdain in their planning, which is, I think, the narrative in the regime that Ukraine doesn't deserve to resist. It's not a real country. And that all transpired to, well, they're probably not going to fight very hard. We're going to decapitate the Zelensky government. They would call it the regime. That was those first, And all of that didn't happen. And then all of this watched, amazed, I think, how inept the Russians were on any operation that required breadth or what we used to call second echelon exploitation and support. That didn't happen. So my name is Micah Hall. I'm the Devil's Advocate Red Team. I kind of work in a lot of different parts of G2, and also I support the command group. I happen to be a Russian linguist. I worked at Defense Language Institute for many years. I was hired there to teach Russian, so I keep up on the Russian news. Probably a lot of the folks on the ground um, who were being sent in didn't see it coming, didn't know what they were going into. Um, there's been some speculation that this was originally meant to be a fifth group, special ops, um, FSB type of, you know, go in quick and dirty, create some social unrest, and sort of like the Ukrainian people will take over themselves, Alia, Orange Revolution, you know, um, create social unrest, and they'll be unhappy with Zelensky, and they'll um, unseat him, and, you know, sort of this thing will take care of itself, and we'll install our own puppet government. And it didn't work out that way. And I think that the sending in the army was not the plan. While the fight has not progressed or manifested as Russia hoped, they have employed many of their capabilities and concepts that have been strengths of the Russian military. Their massive arsenal of fires and significant gains in unmanned systems use have been major features of the Russian offensive. Russian modernization is an evolving concept and we will be looking at it 
for quite a while as this war continues and uh, hopefully after this war ends soon. There's a lot of data, there's a lot of information to absorb, and there's a lot for us to understand about the Russian military conduct in the first several months into this war uh, that we find ourselves right now and uh, possibly uh, longer as uh, this war may continue. I think it's clear that some technologies were adopted better. Um, some technologies were better integrated organically into the Russian force. Uh, some technologies were not. And uh, some of the systems and weapons that were in uh, different stages of research, development, testing, and evaluation by the Russian military have never actually made it past the testing stage, um, even though the Russian discussions almost created the impression that the uh, inclusion and acquisition of these systems was going to be rather imminent. Uh, obviously, such uh, Russian discourse struck a more positive tone when it came to the development of these advanced technologies because the world at large, and especially the countries that Russia was arming against, United States, NATO, as well as Russia's peers and allies like China and Iran, were actually developing these technologies as well. And they were talking about the impact of advanced technology like military autonomy, artificial intelligence, military robotics, on military operations. And so in some ways, some parts of Russian modernization reached uh, the forces much faster. But again, now we are seeing that the Russian military as large and as complex as it is, uh, had a rather uneven emphasis on some aspects of modernization and especially the inclusion of some of the more advanced technologies. So I think what we're seeing now is sort of a back to basics approach. And you've seen that particularly over the last month, um, month and a half of the of the conflict, where they've realized, you know, hey, look, fires is is the strength that that they possess. And that's what they're using right now, particularly in the in the Donbass area. You know, they, they have lots of fires that they can rely upon, uh, some very sophisticated systems, but but also mass. And one of the things I've learned over the the past year or so, I've, I've ended up having to play in a lot of war games, is mass matters. And, and the Russians have a lot of mass in, in terms of fires. Brigadier General retired Peter L. Jones, and currently I'm the director of the National Infantry Museum here outside the gates of Fort Benning, Georgia, home of the Maneuver Center of Excellence. As the infantry commandant, I had the, the privilege of not only serving our infantry soldiers, but got an opportunity to look at Russia's actions both in the Ukraine and also in Syria through a Russian new generation warfare study that was sponsored by General Milley to TRADOC and really tasked down to HR McMaster. Uh, I helped lead the team that actually put the, the data points together. The character of the Russian army is they are an artillery army with tanks. They are a fires-based army because the predominance of their infantry are still conscripts with limited training so in order to get a conscript on an objective, the best way to do that is pummel the adversary till the adversary is either beaten down and concedes the terrain or is so stunned that the ground combat that ensues uh, is such that the conscript has a, an even-to-even -even odds uh, against a Ukrainian soldier that obviously is fighting for his country. And we've seen that now played out in the Donbass of going back to what is the true character of the Russian way of warfare and also an attempt to revitalize the encirclement techniques that they use very successfully in World War II. The idea that there is a transparent battle space 
So you just can't do river crossings uh, with smoke. You have to be able to do multiple other things to be able to, to have successful river crossings and the value of being on one side of the river versus the other. So I do think that Russia has reverted back to their character of war. Now it is a question of magazine depth on both sides, but I do think Putin would love to still be able to place a puppet government in Kyiv or at least get all the way to the Dnieper River and truly own eastern Ukraine to build that buffer, as well as I think the next question will be what happens to Odessa and everything else around the Black Sea. Prior to the onset of the war, uh, Russian defense uh, establishment, its uh, its military uh, academia, its end users were discussing the use of different types of unmanned aerial vehicles for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, for for targeting, for target acquisition, for combat, for electronic warfare, and other related duties. And so now in Ukraine, we're actually seeing that on a very, very large scale. We're actually seeing Russian military use the entire lineup of its unmanned aerial vehicles that they developed and practiced with prior to the war. We're seeing a lot of Orlan 10 unmanned aerial vehicle, which is the mainstay and the workhorse of the Russian UAV fleet. We're seeing Alarons, we're seeing Stavas and Tachyons. Uh, we're seeing uh, four posts and Orions, which are heavier, larger, and longer-ranged Russian unmanned aerial vehicles. We're also seeing a very interesting evolution of the um, almost total inclusion of commercial off-the-shelf drones like Chinese-made DJI model lineup into some of the Russian operations and especially into the Russian allied forces from Donetsk to the point where the volunteers who are providing such commercial and civilian drones are actually asking for very specific models from those who volunteer to send them to the Russian forces or those who volunteer to crowdfund the acquisition of such commercial technologies. We are seeing Russian military use its combat drones incrementally, uh, not on the scale they probably would like themselves, certainly not on the scale that they discussed they need to use them uh, prior to the start of the war as they looked at the conclusion of Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020. Uh, but we're seeing some of Russia's Orion and Forpost conduct uh, military missions. The majority of Russian UAV use is actually for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance and for guiding uh, rocket and artillery forces to Ukrainian targets. This is what the Russian military practiced for, and this is what they were developing. Uh, we are now discussing Russia's use of reconnaissance fire and reconnaissance strike contours, a concept that they were developing in Syria, a concept that they practiced for extensively in different drills and exercises across the Russian military prior to the war. This concept includes unmanned aerial vehicle as a key aerial asset that provides real-time intelligence back to the command and control, to the headquarters, and to the artillery rocket systems or ground forces. We're actually seeing Russian military use this concept extensively, but we're also seeing Ukrainian forces using that, sometimes with even greater success against the Russian military. We're also seeing commercial drones take center stage in some of these reconnaissance fire and reconnaissance strike contours, either because military drones are not available or uh, because it's simply easier to use technology that is available right there at the fingertips of uh, Russian forces, Ukrainian forces, and the volunteers. We're also seeing uh, limited use of unmanned ground vehicles for demining operations. We're talking about Uran-6 UGV 
that the Russian military has tested for years and used in Syria and also in Nagorno-Karabakh. This type of demining is done after the Russian forces have cleared an area from their Ukrainian adversaries, after uh, Russian military has secured a certain area so that there are no Ukrainian fires or countermeasures to disrupt the operation of Iran-6. We're seeing uh, Ukrainian military starting to acquire their own small UGVs for ISR. Uh, we're seeing Russian military, as well as the Ukrainian military, use loitering drones in increasing numbers. Uh, this is an interesting evolution of Russian aerial um, applications of drones and, and other systems, because this is a technology that Russian military lacked in large numbers prior to the war. This is the technology that the Russian military has observed with great effect uh, used in the Nagorno-Karabakh war by the Azerbaijani military. And so this is a technology that the Russian military basically said they needed yesterday. We are starting to see Russian military use its Kuban Lancet loitering drones against Ukrainian targets, but there's limited use and rather limited success rate of these loitering drones against the Ukrainian positions. Uh, to respond to that, Ukrainian military is using their own loitering drones provided to them by the U.S. military uh, with greater success. A lot of that is visible on open source and on social media, on Twitter, on Telegram, and on other channels. And we have to be a bit more cautious here because social media doesn't necessarily provide us with a full aperture of what is happening on the ground. It is uh, posted in a selective fashion and done in a way to minimize own losses or detriments and exaggerate adversarial losses as well. So while there's plenty of data on Russian UAV losses, Ukrainian UAV losses in this war, and the Russian and Ukrainian unmanned aerial vehicle and drone usage, we're seeing again um, a rather smaller part of what is actually happening on the ground and in the air in Ukraine. Uh, the point is to use these technologies and systems to safeguard soldiers, to remove them from dangerous combat duty or from dangerous situations, uh, make missions more effective, and hopefully avoid civilian casualties. So the Russian application of Oran-6 demining UGV is part of that concept that the Russian military is using this technology in place of sending, uh, for example, just human soldiers to conduct um, demining operations. But we're also seeing uh, Russian sappers actually working minefields on their own without necessarily extensive use of these demining vehicles. And so on one hand, sort of Russian military is corresponding to its own plans and procedures. On the other hand, when it comes to the demining UGVs in particular, there aren't enough of them to scale up such usage. And also this type of application is vulnerable to counterattacks. And like I mentioned earlier, Russian military only uses this technology once they clear a certain area. When it comes to UAVs for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, right, the main goal of using unmanned aerial vehicles for such concepts is to provide real-time information on the adversary and to make strikes on the adversary a lot more effective. And so when it comes to the reconnaissance fire and reconnaissance strike contours, presumably uh, Russia's use of UAVs, for example, is corresponding to the mission of effectiveness and safeguarding Russian soldiers because they can target Ukrainian weapons, systems and materiel and, uh, and manpower more effectively. 
Unexpectedly, the Russian military's performance in this war has fallen far short of global military assessments. Russian conscript forces have appeared wholly unprepared, the Russian military is struggling to generate combat power and reconstitute forces, and is losing general officers on the front lines at a surprising rate. Considering the historical assumption of Russia's military prowess, what has gone wrong for them? I think in phase one, the Russians executed a plan that was predominantly built on poor assumptions that may have been driven predominantly more by faulty intelligence, that it would be easy to get to Kiev and decapitate and have a fifth column and put in a puppet government that would obviously look east towards Moscow, uh, sort of like previous history of the Ukraine before the, the Maidan revolutions. Um, so it was going back to pre-Maidan, we would go back and reassert that status quo. I think that objective is still there, but now it's one of violence to achieve it. But also what you saw is that was also done by a miscalculation and assumption, maybe by Putin on the quality of his force, that he thought they were capable of the great maneuver that he had seen the 3rd Infantry Division do on the run to Baghdad. So I think the officer corps, um, you know, again, which they spend a lot of time developing and is, is rather combat experience, is performing as well as it can under the circumstances that that they've been dealt in, in some ways. I don't know if it's fair to say that an over-reliance on them is what's leading to these deaths, but I think it's certainly part and parcel to, to, to what we're seeing. Um, I think the Russian forces that were committed, particularly in the early part of the conflict, probably were given a mission that was not necessarily in line with what they were actually going to try to 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 be faced with or what they were what they were up against. And so I think there was a lot of winging it, if you will. And I think those officers winged it as as best they could, but but they didn't they didn't have enough to to get there. And I think they were so off their doctrine and their approach to war in what they were trying to accomplish that I think the winging it led to some of this. I think one of the other things that, that is leading to this is the fact that, that these officers, um, you know, who again are, are experienced and who have, have led in, in many cases in combat in the past, are having to make up for deficiencies uh, with the force. So deficiencies in communications, deficiencies in integration, deficiencies in joint convergence of capabilities. And so, so I think all of that put together has led to a more hands-on approach and, and is at least partially responsible for, for what we've seen. This was not billed as a full-scale war and therefore did not elicit full-scale mobilization. Therefore, a lot of Russian units were not staffed to the full potential. Um, a lot of the units, as advertised, actually lacked a lot of manpower. And as Russia invaded Ukraine, it did so under false pretenses and under very false assumptions. For some reason, Russian military and the Russian government were convinced, probably Russian government more so than the military, was convinced that this would be a quick operation, and that the Ukrainian military would not present an obstacle, and that the Ukrainian government would fall or there would be chaos in Kiev as the Russian forces would be advancing. And of course, the opposite was true, that the Ukrainian military was and is still very capable, very adaptable. They had a lot of weapons and systems. And uh, the Russian military met very stiff resistance and suffered very high casualty rates in the early stages of the war. Today, we're seeing the Russian military as it intended to fight. 
as it's trying to staff up, as it is devoting more resources, and as it is proceeding across the Donbass and uh, Ukraine South in a in a much better, objectively speaking, fashion when it comes to the deployment of its weapon systems units, men, and materiel. So all of that taken together resulted in um, sort of these botched initial weeks of the invasion when a lot of questions were asked what Russia is doing and why it is actually doing it in that fashion. A lot of people, myself included, asked where are certain weapons and systems and tactics that were not only advertised but available in the Russian military. Now we're actually seeing all of that on a large scale. The soldiers going in were placed in such a untenable situation. Like, why are we going in? What is the basis for this? It's just an impossible situation for them, right? And they're supposed to follow orders, and yet they are finding themselves in this unbelievable scenario. So I, I think they really just weren't ready for it. And then to hear the things coming back on the regular socials, like on Telegram, you know, where the soldiers themselves are like, this equipment is malfunctioning. Our radios aren't working. Like we shoot from our guns and they're not firing. We're running out of ammo. Like our tank treads are, you know, sticking. Can you imagine what happens when they're just saying that to their friends and their girlfriends and their mothers and their sisters? 30, 35% of the force, nobody knows the exact number, are conscripts. And from all over, and we're hearing that a lot of the the cannon fodder now, the conscripts especially, are coming from uh, from some of the more remote areas of Russia because I think Putin and the regime are trying to balance public opinion for this war and everything else. They're, they're working with uh, the demographic situation that they have. They're working within the resources that they're dedicated. And I think they've, they've probably recruited you know, the, the force that they could under the circumstances that, that they face. You know, the, 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 the conscript soldiers, for the most part, you know, aren't playing a, a dynamic role in this fight. These are, these are largely the contract soldiers. And the question is, how much can you, how much can you get out of them? Um, because, you know, there's only so much blood in a stone. I think it's, it's definitely a factor. It's definitely a factor as, they, as they've tried to, to create combat capability. I think the broader issue isn't necessarily on the demographic nature of the force, I think it's on the ad hoc organizational structure that they've used in this operation, sort of moving away from the, the organizational structure that they had pre-war and their, their standing organizational structure to this more ad hoc approach, which is making you know battalions from one organization work with battalions of another with which they've not trained with, which, which they're not familiar with, other leadership elements. So I, I think there's other other issues that that may may be more relevant than than the contract conscript um, divide. But but one thing I think we do know is that again the Russians are, are looking to to recruit more. Uh, I think we've 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 heard we've heard indications of that. So so trying to make up some of those combat losses and figure out how to generate more combat power. It's a really interesting lesson for all of us um, because we. We've often thought in terms of short conflicts, and this has not been a short conflict. Uh, how do we get past that that first fight? How do we reconstitute? I mean, these are these are important questions that I think everybody needs to think about in terms of LISCO. 
Uh, and then we read that their logistics formations were often full of a lot of younger uh, conscript type soldiers uh, that were getting torn apart by, uh, you know, more capable, if you will, and motivated Ukrainian soldiers and territorials and partisans. It was a mess. And we saw that uh, certainly on Kyiv and up down towards Sumy, uh, a little bit around Kharkiv, less so in Donbass because interior lines for the Russians are better and they can supply better. And I think that's affecting their ops somewhat in the South as well. They're a bit spread out. And uh, so they've got a lot. And then the final thing is that the Russian military has got an incredible history of uh, when invaded and when motivated, they fight like lions. They've, they've invaded and they got that in the Ukrainians that they underestimated. But to get to big question, the Russians had not in an organized way practiced operational level ops, everything from coordination, land, air, ground to logistics. You had four military districts providing troops and leadership not convinced that all those logistics were worked out. And in the beginning, they probably came with a lot of their own stuff. And that, I think, required a major a sort of a stop after the fiasco of the first month, six weeks, to try to organize all that, put in a commander. Um, it's still not been good. But it looks like right now, as, as we are now in July, the Russians somewhat have gotten their foot feet under them. A lot of brutal lessons learned. Friction, obviously, for the Russians initially has, was immense. Uh, they made some very poor assumptions in the first phase to think that they could decapitate and just drive easily into to Kiev. And then you know, bottling up and not thinking that they can be seen, destruction of convoys. But friction is also twofold. We see it you know, going on with the Ukrainians and whether their resupply can be enough. The, the question of whether they'll be able to maintain combat power effectively uh, in the Donbass, but also had to pull back in order not to be encircled. All these things are, are, are coming into play. So the Clausewitzian trinity, I think, is still there. And what we're seeing it is, unfortunately, at some point in time, each one goes to extremes. And when you have will go to an extreme, you have crimes against the law of land warfare. You have civilians being unduly killed because the passion the passion to fight and the will to hold on uh, becomes so great that sometimes our ability to regulate violence, that once it is outside the bag uh, of containment, goes on. Um, and I think part of it was their, their overall concept of operations. I think that shock and awe that I mentioned before, part to, to, to potentially compel the adversary to, to quickly give up, I don't think it necessarily worked the right way. So as a result, and, and, and keep in mind, um, you know, the, the Russians have some really great capabilities, um, but, but it's unclear what their magazine depth is. They have good capabilities, but, but it's unclear how much of it that they have. So as a result, they've been able to, to achieve some key effects. So for example, even though we're, we're what, four, four or five months into the conflict, they have not been able to collapse the Ukrainian IADs which is a, a key joint fires mission. It, it, it enables everything else. And there's various reasons for that, I think. Um, some of it might be targeting. Some of it involves, I'm sure, a magazine depth. And some of it is based on how they're employing their joint fires um, as they're, I think, trying to, to snap out of a, 
a fight that they didn't expect into into a, a new and different kind of fight. Um, and now the question becomes is how much do they have left in order to achieve that? But it really kind of shows you how all of this is interrelated and how dynamic it is, right? You need to be able to use these broad joint fires to create key effects, right? The, the IADS is a big one. Um, it would have given them more freedom of maneuver in terms of bringing in tactical air support to their ground units, which in turn may have opened up other possibilities. But because that IADS is still up there, we just haven't seen that much of that. So, so it shows you how this is all this, this interactive dynamic process and, and they just didn't get it right for various reasons. The Russian military has faltered in the current war due to some of its own failings, but as former Secretary of Defense James Mattis has often stated, the enemy gets a vote. The Ukrainian military undertook dramatic reformation in its training, leadership, doctrine, force structure, and capabilities following the Russian annexation of Crimea and incursion into Donbass. Ukraine has successfully prevented Russia from achieving most of its operational and strategic objectives in these early stages grotesque underestimation of the, the Ukrainian capability, but will to fight, which surprises me, frankly, because uh, we remember the cyborgs at, at Donetsk airport in 2014-15, and they put up a hell of a fight for several months. Um, it was sort of Ukraine's Alamo. Now that's Mariupol. Uh, I think so. I, I think they just completely underestimated, maybe in some ways, the way the Wehrmacht underestimated the Soviets when they invaded in 41. They thought that they would cave the whole thing in. So you have that, um, and and I can't uh, uh, overstate that. They also seemingly didn't do a very good job planning for a resistance, which we're seeing pop up, especially in the South. The defender, you know, if they're in reasonable numbers, will have the advantage in a uh, in an urban area and one of the things and we learned that in stalingrad and some of the other city fights in europe world war ii uh the more you rubble the city more cover and concealment you provide the defenders anytime you fight on top of a population and we've learned that but the soviets russians learned that in spades back in the second world war um, you're going to uh, you're going to get the population fighting all across the front. I think you have a lot, a lot of young Russian troops in there that thought that, you know, these are fellow Russian speakers or, or, or close to it. And why are they fighting us? And then the atrocities and, 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 and that builds it gets more vicious on all sides, uh, gets harder. Uh, and, and I don't think they were also ready for the media storm with all the crazy detail coverage uh, going on, though they have built their body a guard of lies uh, with partial effectiveness trying to prevent going in. And shock and surprise, really psychologically strategic surprise. Um, boom, underestimation, the, uh, the Moskva gets sunk in April. I mean, oh my God. But I think the biggest issue that has, should come out is the transparency of the battle space. It really is, you can be seen and detected in more forms of contact than, than we traditionally thought. How do you manage that and camouflage yourself? Mask your electromagnetic spectrum, uh, decrease your emissions. And when you're degraded, how do you go back to old school? So if you're an infantry soldier, how do you break out a map and compass? How do you ensure that you know your own position and have a means to potentially work timing 
such as you can call for fires. Pace plans, primary alternate contingency and emergency communications, uh, because you cannot necessarily rely. And of course, if you primary means of communications don't work, like we found for Russia, that you know did not bode well. There's um, a whole internet infrastructure within Ukraine that has been set up for Ukrainian citizens to. Um, hey, you think you're witnessing a war crime or you've come across the scene of a war crime? Take a picture of it with your smartphone. This is how you document it. This is the website to which you upload it to save it for posterity. I mean, it is amazing how far ahead of the curve they are. Just thinking ahead, ahead, ahead to do everything that they possibly can just because they have people who are thinking like that. The Russian military is one of the most combat experienced forces in the world. They showcase their advancing capabilities in cross-domain fires, maneuver, and unmanned systems during fighting in Syria, Crimea, and eastern Ukraine starting in 2014. But why have these warfighting abilities not translated to significant combat successes in the current war so far? Then you had the full-blown, announce it, white, blue, and red flag flying intervention I'll use uh, into Syria in the fall of 2015. And everything was used. Um, the special ops were there, um, certainly uh, high-end air and naval and missiles and cruise stuff uh, supporting the fight and some conventional infantry formations, but much less so. And they're successful. They save Assad's regime, which is about six weeks from getting pushed into the Mediterranean Sea. And they do it pretty skillfully and they do it. And it is a fairly moderated uh, intervention on the ground, but they're flying caliber missiles from the Caspian Sea. They're flying, they're flying backfires and bears and dropping bombs and firing all kinds of uh, precision. So that was kind of Russia showing their nation, their people, their capabilities and the world. They've been in a number of different conflicts going back to the to the middle 1990s, all the way through the through the 2000s, they've they've been as engaged as the U.S. Army was in in some ways. Um, certainly had a lot of combat experience, but but one of the uncomfortable notions or the uncomfortable questions that surrounds combat experience is, do you have the right combat experience? This is something that that we may be saying come home to roost here. It's one thing to be involved in counterinsurgency operations. It's one thing to be involved in hybrid conflicts against non-state actors and potential against potentially um, weaker regional foes. Um, in this case, the Russians are fighting more of a traditional fight, even if they likely didn't believe that's what they were, they were getting themselves into. And so the question becomes is, is how valuable was the experience that they had? I, I think maybe sometimes we're all guilty of, of overestimating that the relevance of experience. I think it's important. It's it's critically important, and you you learn a lot of things. Um, but the question is, have you have you learned the right things? And so I think that's an open question, and it's something we all need to think about moving forward, uh, particularly as we all start thinking about what it means to be involved in large scale combat operations. In Syria, Russian military operated in a much more permissive environment compared to Ukraine. Russia's and uh, Syrian government's adversaries lacked sophisticated air defenses, sophisticated electronic warfare defenses. They lacked a lot of sophisticated weapons. The Russian military could use blunt force or pinpointed force at will almost. And a lot of the fighting was actually done by the Syrian regular army and the Syrian allies. 
The Ukraine conflict is diametrically different. The Russian military is facing a pure adversary with sophisticated defenses, sophisticated artillery, with its own electronic warfare and ISR capabilities, uh, especially uh, its drones that were used on, on a large scale early on in the war. I'm talking about the Bayraktar TB2 drones and the successful targeting of some Russian positions that were amplified in social media. And so the lessons Russians drew from Syria is that um, some of their weapons and systems can, in fact, work very effectively when not faced with, uh, with a very sophisticated adversary. Uh, but again, Ukraine is probably appending and rewriting some of these lessons as the Russians are learning that they are facing a determined, sophisticated adversary that is actually using a lot of similar weapons and systems as the Russian military itself. But I'll say this. If the Russian military initially invaded with the same tactics and concepts that we're seeing right now, this would be a very different war. And so uh, on one hand, we, we may have overemphasized certain capabilities and prescribed to the rest of the Russian military those advanced capabilities. On the other hand, a lot of the capabilities were analyzed are still very much true and are deployed by the Russian military in Ukraine right now. One of the critical components to Russia's approach to warfare is to win without fighting. They want to use targeted kinetic operations in conjunction with information operations to establish facts on the ground and achieve information dominance. In this war, Russian information confrontation hasn't afforded them significant gains and in some areas has backfired. But I don't think they're going to give up on the doctrine or the practice the notion that information confrontation is central to what they're trying to achieve. I think they've tried to do certain things, but I don't think it's necessarily prevailed for various reasons. But I also think that the win without fighting, say, for example, what they did in Crimea, didn't apply here for various reasons. But that doesn't mean it couldn't be successful in the future. So, so I guess I would say that it didn't work here but I don't necessarily know how, how deep they intended to, to truly go with win without fighting in this case. I think win without fighting would have a much broader impact, for example, if they were contemplating a, a conflict with NATO. And I think it would be crucial, along with the, the use of information confrontation, on their early shaping of a, of a fight, particularly as we would see a, a transition from competition into crisis. I am Katarina Sedova. I currently serve at the Global Engagement Center, or the GEC, in the United States Department of State. Um, since we last spoke on this podcast in November, I left my role as the research fellow at the Georgetown University Center for Security and Emerging Technology and joined the GEC Russia division to help coordinate our efforts to analyze, expose, and counter Russia's disinformation, including about its war in Ukraine. Russia is pushing a lot of blatant disinformation about Ukraine, the United States, NATO, and the international coalition in order to justify its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, in order to crack at the unity of response, uh, but also to sell this, quote, special operation, unquote, to the uh, domestic audiences in Russia. The difference from what we may have expected in November is that many of the influence operations tactics are more overt. 
Russia employs a collection of official proxy and unattributed communications channels and platforms to create and amplify disinformation or propaganda. We at the GEC call this ecosystem of disinformation and propaganda. And uh, we laid out the pillars of this ecosystem in an August uh, 2020 report, which you can find on state.gov disarming disinformation site. But we see this ecosystem as containing five elements or pillars, official government communications, uh, state funded outlets, uh, social media, uh, meaning an authentic accounts, trolls, bots, um, other coordinated activity, cyber-enabled hack and leak operations, and proxy sources or websites within Kremlin-aligned ecosystem that, that effectively serve as the connective tissue to all the other pillars within the broader ecosystem. All of these work together to create a media multiplier effect to flood the information environment with disinformation storms on any number of issues. And then there have also been um, people outside of Russia who are trying to help people inside of Russia not get closed off by the people within the Russian government who are trying to have a, a chokehold, stranglehold on the Russian pipeline of you know internet that would come in through into into Russia. So back in 2017, I think it was uh, one of Putin's advisors, um, uh, Igor Ashmanov, who was at that time a real sort of internet. Uh, zealot who had proposed this idea of making a law similar to or analogous to the American Patriot Act that would have ostensibly for the protection of the Russian people from these nefarious Western um, forces um, would have brought all of the world's internet through a Russian pipeline so that all the information would be checked um, by, you know, Russian validators who would look at everything and then let everything through this pipeline. So you can imagine this like giant fire hose of information that is the the Internet that would come down through this teeny tiny straw, you know, and everything would come down and then come through this trickle and then come through. That didn't actually happen. But imagine what it sounded like in 2017 when Putin was planning his next platform for his, for the next presidential election and it was all built on this idea of digital sovereignty and that sounded like a really good plank in that platform so it kind of sounded good and it went along with this idea of creating this crypto ruble which was a complete misnomer but there were sort of all of these good sounding ideas and he sort of ran on this platform and it worked for him and that was already at the point where he was realizing he didn't really need any kind of platforms with any kind of planks he could just you know power through and like what was the point of even having ideas and rhetoric like he was just going to be it anyway but that was right at that conversion point where he kind of felt like, oh, I still need to say things as if I have ideas. That was a very dangerous idea. And then they started to realize, oh, that's really good idea. <laughs> we should totally make good on that and start doing that. Instead of doing that, that specific, um, carrying out that specific idea, they went with a much less sophisticated idea, which is let's just declare everyone enemies of the state, you know, foreign agents. Um, and then we just go into your offices and we completely raid your office and then we, you know, pull out all your computers and your equipment and then good luck. I think he tried 
the win without fighting. I think we saw that through the buildup of the Russian forces you know, prior to the new year. The target of his information operations is not us. So if you're not the target, then we don't necessarily feel the results. Um, his information operations are obviously towards the Ukrainians or also towards those Ukrainians that may now stay in very much expanded occupation zone. He now owns almost 20% of the Ukraine and has truly you know, expanded almost all of the territory that he would have seeked outside of the, of the Donbass to expand both the Oblast areas. And the real question is, is he going to be able to truly cut off the Ukraine from the Black Sea? So I think his focus of his information operations is to the West of saying, I'm going to continue to promulgate this. I'm not going to be dissuaded, but predominantly it's internally. So we had independent media and civil society quickly pick up and investigate these false claims and debunk them. Um, United States provided tips on what to look for, but the ecosystem responded on its own with more credibility and wider reach. So as a result, what you had was public was informed and on alert ahead of time. Europeans recognized disinformation when they saw it and they rejected it. And as a result, we have a massive failure of Russia's efforts to sway Western and Ukrainian audiences with disinfo. But there is some evidence that they may be more successful with non-Western audiences. Uh, though those countries may not have been the initial priority for Russia's disinformation, uh, now they are possibly becoming more important as a wedge between West and non-Western politics and uh, international cohesion. So in some ways, it's really too early to claim victory on this information front. The war has been going on for five months. Coverage of the conflict has been global and minute by minute. Prior to the Russian invasion, Western intelligence agencies and defense analysts potentially overestimated Russian capabilities, specifically their ability to scale up in high-intensity combat operations against a state actor. Ukrainian military modernization and national will were underestimated by both Russian leadership and global defense experts. What did experts get wrong and right about this conflict and how Russia fights? Is it too early in the conflict to definitively or decisively declare them as lessons learned? From a conflict perspective, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about sort of what we got right and what we got wrong. Um, and I think this just shows a, a sort of a, a broad effort on what we need to do to learn. I think we got an awful lot right. Um, you know, I think uh, you see some of it in the in the media, some of the discussions even from from senior leaders in terms of the start of the conflict. Uh, some of the warning that occurred, I thought was was pretty interesting. Um, but I think I think you know what what did we not necessarily get right in terms of of capabilities and what's hard to understand. And this is you know for us, I think understanding how effective are these forces, right? As we look at, as we look at them, uh, there are some important things we need to think about here as we think about the Russian army, as we think about other other potential adversaries, uh, the Chinese PLA, for example. We can see them and we can watch them train and, and think about them in those terms, but, but what does that really equate to? Um, this, I think, will, will be good for us moving forward. The other thing I would say is as this conflict progresses, I'd be very wary of anybody talking about lessons learned. 
I don't think we've learned any lessons yet. I think we're still learning. And I think we're going to continue to learn until this is conflict is over and we can we can think about it and, and really and truly understand what we've seen. Um, so so I've been very, very mindful of not rushing to judgment. Uh, I'm not willing to write the Russians off because they they had a bad uh, start to this conflict and because they're they're not breaking through on every front that at this moment, I, I still think that they they are a, a capable force in, in some ways. And I would also note that if we think that what we're seeing in Ukraine would be a similar kind of conflict if they ever chose to go at NATO, I think is also uh, something we would have to have to think about in a, in a different way. Um, I don't think the Russians are fighting this fight like they necessarily would if they if they found themselves in a broader fight with NATO, for example, there are there are other factors and there are other issues that would would be at play. I think it's too early to say exactly what went right or what went wrong with that respect. Uh, I think certain parts of the Russian military have received more attention than others. And I think we may have um, overemphasized some of the developments that were, let's say, more covered in the news or by the Russia's own analytical community than, than others. So, for example, the development of autonomy, artificial intelligence, robotics was covered far and wide across the Russian media from state sources, from the military. And there were a lot of discussions. Uh, there were a lot of deliberations within the uh, Ministry of Defense, within the military academia, within the military industry about the development and impact of these technologies and systems for Russia's tactical and operational successes. Uh, that may have created the impression that uh, the larger Russian military was as influenced by the development and adoption of these advanced technologies as, for example, these discussions, these public deliberations have indicated. I think a lot of us on the analytical side, myself included, you know, we, we all, you know, pay attention to the Soviet Russian term correlation of forces, whether it was 180,000, 200,000, 200, it just didn't look like enough people. And if you study the Great Patriotic War, World War II, you know, just the front around Kharkiv uh, would have been uh, three to 400,000 people. And the, the front that was running along uh, down from Crimea all the way up towards um, the Belarus border and all that, um, you know, you're well over a million, million plus, two million Soviets and equivalent Germans. So they were desperately understaffed to do all these things. The Russia-Ukraine war has disrupted the global economy and stressed international alliances. The war continues to evolve in both its character and scale. Russia is facing international pressure and suffering from severe economic sanctions while still trying to prosecute the war. So what is the Russian way forward? I expect Russia to incorporate AI-enabled techniques much more so into their operations. They have done the bare minimum in this space so far, using the GAN-generated avatars for inauthentic social media profiles, for example or using techniques that have been previously seen over the past couple of years. But as we discussed in November, the technology is evolving quickly and uh, many more AI-enabled text generation systems, for example, um, and chatbots are now publicly available. Um, I still expect Russia may incorporate these systems into their workflow to automate their operations. 
especially as they step up covert influence operations um, more prevalent during the time between peace and outright war. But if they do use generative language models, for example, chances are uh, we may not be able to detect their use. So from technology perspective, this threat still remains on the horizon, uh, though we may see these systems in use sooner rather than later. Um, the one constant that we can count on is that Russia will continue to attempt to manipulate information environments and attempt to divide open societies worldwide. I think at this point, Russian military is going to benefit from the fact that the Ukrainian military has been exhausted, that the Ukrainian military lost a lot of manpower materiel, they lost a lot of weapons and systems. Ukraine relies on the deliveries of Western weapons and, and technologies to continue fighting. And Russia benefits that it has a lot more of the same sort of in storage as we're seeing right now that the Russian military is deploying older tanks, older armored vehicles into this war because Ukraine now lacks comparable technologies and it lacks comparable numbers. To further advance by the Russian military deeper into Ukraine may be problematic because of the high rate of attrition suffered by the Russian military itself. It too lost a lot of soldiers and, and materiel and weapons. And so its advance is slow and incremental, but it's still an advance. They may not be able to achieve a significant breakthrough and the Ukrainian military may not also achieve a significant breakthrough because both militaries have been exhausted. Long-term prospects probably favor Russian military a little bit more in this regard, but a lot will depend on what happens in the next several weeks as the fighting intensifies. I'm imagining at some point um, the Russians will will try to claim victory. Um, they'll they'll think they have enough. Uh, what that what that point is, I'm I'm not exactly sure. And then they will will try to do what they what we've always said they would do in a conflict, right? Create the conditions on the ground that that they they wish, and then look for an off ramp. Um, that off ramp could be freezing the conflict. That off-ramp could be, you know, trying to come up with a, a broader peace agreement um, involving other powers. It could be, uh, you know, some kind of, of deal they make with the Ukrainians. Who knows? Um, but but I think the ball would would truly be in the Russian in the Russian court to decide when they when they think they've they've had enough. You know, the Ukrainians, I think, obviously will will keep fighting as as best they can. I think I think the Ukrainians would would certainly do everything they can to reclaim all of their lost territory, um, but but that's you know there there has been a significant swath of of Ukrainian territory that the Russians have occupied from from that crescent in Kherson down in the south, all the way up across the Donbass and and up to Kharkiv. You know that's a lot of territory, and I'm sure the Ukrainians would be would be interested in in reclaiming as all or as much of it as they. As they possibly could, but but I'm guessing at at some point the Russians say you know we'll, we'll try to declare victory, and then it will be up to the Ukrainians and and the rest of the world to to, to say how how that goes. Well, Russia spreads disinformation with a specific targeted strategic goal to divide the Western societies and have their citizens lose trust in democracy and democratic institutions. Disrupting Western society is Russia's main goal, while increasing its prestige on the world stage is a close second. 
It is more an idea of creating disorder and breaking down the existing order rather than building anything up. It also tries to get both Western and non-Western countries alike to a desired state that the Kremlin perceives to be beneficial to its national security objectives. So in the context of Russia's war on Ukraine, the long game is likely manifold. Um, first, continue to chip away at the unity of the Western response. Um, it's likely to continue exploiting passions and grievances and target the publics, uh, particularly on the political extremes, to put pressure on partner governments to reverse course. Second, it is likely to continue attempts to sow doubt in the non-Western information environments about its horrific war in Ukraine and about the West's response. So part of its long game is to wait out the United States and our allies, chip away at the resolve in supporting Ukraine, all the while contesting the global information environment. I think when we talk about victory, we have to talk about the spectrum of victory. Strategically, as long as a free, independent, sovereign Ukraine exists, they will never achieve, in their mind, a full strategic victory. And we're, you know, we're, we're hearing about the Russians today, you know, they're in a pause uh, and, and Putin, you know, talking about that this is, you know, just this is, this is far from the end. This is just the beginning. So don't know. But strategically, for the Russians, the fact that, that Kyiv even is held, recognized foreign diplomats and leaders coming in, that is very, very hard for the Russians because they wanted to decapitate Kyiv. They have muted that discussion right now and, and, and changed the narrative to uh, Donbass. And in my mind, the, the, the somewhere in there, they can claim success, a victory. This was our intent all along, was to uh, reconnect uh, uh, you know, uh, our Russian brethren in Donbass. Uh, with uh, Mother Russia. And I think that is playing out. The Russia-Ukraine war continues on with critical questions remaining about what technologies and approaches to warfare will be decisive. The future character of warfare is volatile, but iterative exploration of how our adversaries fight is critical to readying the Army for the future. Stay tuned to The Convergence and the U.S. Army Mad Scientist Initiative as we continue to explore the operational environment.